Turn with me in your Bible to John chapter 4 for our study this evening. John chapter 4. This is one of my favorite sections of Scripture, which I have many favorite sections of Scripture. It's kind of like Baskin Robbins. It's hard to pick a favorite, isn't it? You ready for the Lord to meet you in His Word? Ready for some refreshment? Wednesday night service is great. You know, it's busy as we go through our week, and this is smack dab right in the middle of the week. Great time to draw near to the Lord, so... Take a quick moment without being totally awkward, but just kind of look at the person at your right or your left. It's okay. You can look at them. They're there. Because we're going to pray for the person on the right and your left as we go into prayer. So let's pray together. Father, we just thank you for the joy of the simplicity, but the power of your word. And we're asking tonight that you would speak to our hearts in a tangible and practical way, that we would grow in the knowledge of you, Jesus. And just take a moment to pray for the person on your right, whether you know them or not. Ask the Lord to meet them and refresh them. And pray for those on your left, the person on your left. So, Father, we come with anticipation to what you're going to speak to us through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Living water. Jesus presents living water to this woman that he meets at the well, the Samaritan woman. And it provokes the question for us, what well are we drinking out of? Are we drinking out of the refreshment that comes in relationship with Jesus Christ? Or have we looked to something else to try to fill that void inside of our hearts? And this particular lady, she had tried to fill this void through relationship. Jesus exposes that she's had four husbands, and the man that she's currently with is not her husband. So it was a relationship with one man, another man, and another man that was leaving her in a place of absolute emptiness, but it all changes for her in this one moment as she encounters Jesus Christ. If you were here last week, we talked about God's heart for the world, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And we see God's expression of his love in these verses in John 4. Jesus lives it out by going to the Samaritans. And we'll talk about how they were an unreached people. They were also a group of people. There was great prejudice towards them. They were the untouchables. And Jesus is showing his heart for the outcasts. He's showing us how he goes out of his way to reach those people that nobody else wants anything to do with. So let's look in verse 1 of chapter 4. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, that's John the Baptist, though Jesus himself did not baptize, but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again to Galilee. You've maybe noticed as you've studied the Gospels is that Jesus makes sure that he's outside of the limelight. There's a point even where they want to try to take Jesus by force and make Jesus their king. And Jesus is very intentional that he didn't come to be king, but he came to die upon the cross. And so the limelight's starting to build, and so he steps out of Judea, which is southern Israel, and he goes to Galilee, where he'll spend most of his time, which is in northern Israel. In verse 4, but he needed to go through Samaria. And that's worth underlining. He needed in the priority of God, and what's impassioning God 
to go through Samaria. So a little bit of history on Samaria. It's right in the center of Israel. And in 722 BC, before Christ, the northern ten tribes, known as Israel, the bottom two tribes were Judah, but those northern tribes were taken captive by the Assyrians in 722 BC. But the Assyrians took the majority of the Israelites out of the land, but they left a minority, and then they would bring in other people groups into Israel and encourage them to intermarry. So you've got a whole new group of people that are birthed through this, known as the Samaritans. And ethnically, they're part Israeli, but then what other other countries had come in the mix. So because of that, true Jews, those that weren't Samaritans, they would look down upon the Samaritans to the point that the most direct route from Jerusalem, Judea, southern Israel, up to Galilee, was to go right through Samaria. But no Jew ever did that. (laughs) They went around, made a whole new path just to make sure that they would never have any interaction with the Samaritans. So Jesus is breaking all of those boxes of prejudice by going through Samaria. And he's going through Samaria because there's one woman that needs to be touched with the love of Jesus Christ. And as her heart is filled with living water, then it spreads to a Samaritan city. And I've got to encourage you if you feel like an outcast. Maybe you're the black sheep in your family, the black sheep in the workplace. For some reason, through events that have taken place in your life, you feel lonely, you feel like you're the leftover, all of those things, Jesus is giving a message that his heart is for you. And also for us, as we live our lives, there's a certain aspect that some build their ministries on trying to reach all of the stars. If we could just see the top athletes come to know Christ, the really famous people that come to know Christ, then they'll have a platform to be able to share the gospel with others. And that's true. The gospel's for everybody, whether you're famous or you're not famous. But when we look at the ministry of Jesus Christ, who did he target? He targeted the outcasts. He targeted people that were hurt and abused and left over from the mainstream of society. And so are we willing to go through Samaria? And that's a hard question. Who is the outcast of our culture and our society? And I've got to tell you, it's not going to be easy. It's not going to be comfortable. It's not glamorous, but it's worthwhile because there's hungry people that need to know the love of Jesus Christ. So Jesus comes to our Samaria He reaches us and he wants us to reach out to others who could be the outcast. Verse 5, so he came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. This place is just filled with history. The history goes all the way back to Genesis with Jacob. That Jacob gave this plot of land to Joseph. That he has a well there. Water is so valuable there in Israel as it's an arid climate. Jesus is sitting down in this journey and he's just wore out. Can you relate? Don't take this for granted. The king of kings, the creator of the universe, in his incarnation, God becoming man, he knows exactly what it's like to feel worn out. So when we come to Wednesday night service and, oh Lord, I'm excited to be here. I'm excited to be in worship and be in the word, but I'm wore out. 
the week's already rung my bell and I feel like I'm spent and all those things Jesus understands. And sometimes we're even weary from the things that God has called us to do. Not that we're sick of them or tired of them or we want to give up on it or we would want to go do anything else. Jesus is right in the center of the Father's will and he is wore out, he's weary because he's extending himself and he's pouring himself out. And sometimes we think if it's hard work or we get tired from doing what God's called us to do, then it must not be God's call. And see, Jesus shows us he understands what it's like to be wore out. And it's also very true that right smack dab in the middle of God's call, it's going to be difficult. And putting yourself into the work that he's called you to do could even bring you to that place of exhaustion. This is worth meditating on, and I find it so encouraging that I can go to Jesus and go, Jesus, you know what this feels like. You know what it feels like to be weary and to be tired. In verse 7, a woman of Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. So it's just Jesus and this Samaritan woman at this well, in fact, Jacob's well, and he asks for a drink of water. The disciples have the assignment of going to Five Guys Burgers and Fries. It was time to pick up a falafel, you know, and bring it, bring it back and to have some pita bread. It was time to eat. Why does Jesus ask for a drink of water. Two reasons. And the first is, through conversations, he's building a bridge to spiritual truth. And this is a lesson for us, as we want to reach people. Jesus has given us a commission to make disciples, to go and preach and declare the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. Do you know how that happens? By being friendly and starting conversations. And not necessarily the first words being out of our mouth, do you know Jesus? And they're like, who are you? You know, nice to meet you, right? There's a progression in this conversation where Jesus is building a bridge and it starts with a drink of water. Amazing what the Lord will do as we simply care about people, love them, and begin to talk to them. And I know this is so simple. It's right there for us in, in the front of our Bibles. But no matter what our personalities are, we've all got different personalities, and some of you are extroverts, and some are introverts, and God's created all of those personalities. But in the very core is God loves people. He loves and cares about this woman, and he cares about those that are working at King Supers and at Starbucks and those that live on our streets and in our apartment complexes and amazing that we can just stop and say, how are you doing? What's going on? And the Lord begins to open up opportunities. Apply this even as you go to work tomorrow. Talk to people and pray that the Lord would bring about a conversation. The second reason that Jesus does this, the first to build a bridge, but the second is this is going to be a segue into the spiritual. Jesus often does this. If we look at the way that Jesus cared and reached for people, it's something that we can model. Is start a conversation that's about physical things and segue into the spiritual. Jesus did it with Nicodemus, the wind. The wind was blowing upon them. And Jesus says, this is an illustration for the Holy Spirit. A great opportunity to teach. He's around farmers and he, he sees them planting seed. Oh, this is a great opportunity to teach. And so he's going to talk about physical water to bring about spiritual water. 
Also, we cannot underestimate what Jesus is doing culturally here. We live in a culture where it's very open for men and women to talk to each other, sometimes too open. Amen? Right? To agree. To agree. Yeah, la, 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 la. <laughs> Moving on. But in Christ's culture, in his day and age, men and women didn't talk to each other. It was culturally taboo. On top of that, Jews didn't talk to Samaritans. And Jesus breaks those cultural boundaries and he's asking for a drink of water. Then the woman of Samaria said to him, how is it that you being a Jew ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. If you're underlining or taking notes, the amazing thing that happens with this conversation is the longer that she talks to Jesus the more she understands who Jesus is. And she begins by calling Jesus a Jew. You being a Jew, and may even have been a little bit derogatory, that racial tension between the Samaritans and the Jews. But as she continues to talk to Jesus, her respect and her understanding of him grows. And so she says, what are you doing? How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink, a Samaritan woman? Verse 10, Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it was who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked and he would have given you living water. So Jesus very politely, respectfully says, If you knew who you were talking to, you would be asking him for a drink and you would be asking for a different kind of drink, living water. The water that can satisfy your soul, that can bring meaning to life and, and satisfaction. And I wonder how many times that Jesus would say the same thing to us, even as God's children. We're coming to, to the Lord with this and that, and that's on our heart. And I wonder if Jesus is saying, if you knew who you were talking to, you'd ask for living water. You would ask for that emptiness to be filled inside of you and for me to fill you to overflowing. This is what Jesus wants to give. He wants to give the living water. Verse 11, the woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where then will you get living water? So underline, sir. He went from Jew to sir. Now there's a respect that has elevated. And she says, you don't have anything to draw with. How are you going to get living water? How, and she's thinking of a cistern where it's a steady flow of water, an artesian well. I remember in Oregon backpacking and being in places in the mountains, maybe you've experienced this too, where the stream, the water comes right out of the ground. And it's such pure water that you can drink it without any filtration that's upon it and not get diarrhea till Easter. <laughs> it's a blessing. And... Hey, it's Wednesday night. There's a little more freedom on Wednesday nights. <laughs> yes and amen. So she's thinking, how are you going to get this living water? You don't have anything to draw with. This is a well. In verse 12, are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us this well and drank from it himself as well as his sons and his livestock? Jesus is really bringing up the question of his identity, of who he is. And whenever we can get people to consider Jesus, to stop and think about who Jesus is, we're getting them in the right direction. And so she's beginning to ask questions about, what, who do you think you are? 
And even if they're starting off in a place where it's a little bit disrespectful towards Christ, they're at least thinking about Christ. They're at least examining this question of, who do I exactly believe that Jesus is? And so she's starting to wonder, are you greater than Jacob, who dug this well, who's our father, who we esteem so much? And Jesus answered and said to her, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never thirst. The water that I give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. And Jesus is not just talking about the physical water that we need to come back and drink every day. But we're all going to look somewhere for satisfaction. It's our place, our object of worship. And if it's anything less than Jesus Christ, if it's a counterfeit, we're always going to go back longing for more. If it's success at work, it's never going to be enough. I've got to have a little bit more success at work. If it's possessions, it's always a little bit more, a little bit different. We're chasing the wind. If it's through relationship, even good relationships with your spouse, with your kids, with your friends, there's always a little bit more. Your spouse could do a little bit more. Your kids could do a little bit more. Your friends could do a little bit more. We're always going to come back longing and looking for more. And Jesus says, look, I'll give you living water that once you experience, it's this fountain, it's this artesian well that continues to well up inside of you and we enjoy it for all of eternity. Now, I think the heartbreak for all of us that know the Lord is our Savior is we've experienced this living water, haven't we? And we enjoy the salvation that we have and the forgiveness and the fact that we're the adopted children of God. When Jesus tells us that we're joint heirs with Christ, how gracious that is of God. That we have the same inheritance as Jesus Christ. We're such fallen sinners. But yet there's so many times we get away from this well, don't we? And we start looking to the wells of this world. And we start looking to our own things and our own endeavors, and we just start to feel empty. And it's God's love that allows us to feel empty when we're looking to other things. And they may even be good things. Sometimes they're sinful things. Sometimes they're not sinful things inherent in and of themselves, but they're not the living water of Jesus Christ. My question to all of us tonight is, are we enjoying that living water that Jesus Christ came to provide? Is it welling up inside of us? If not, we like this woman can come and drink of that water tonight. In verse 15, then the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst nor come here to draw. She's saying, this sounds good. I don't want to have to come back here every day to get water out of this well. Man, we take it for granted. You turn on the tap and here comes this water out of the faucet. Spend time in places like Uganda and Costa Rica, and you start to understand how hard people work just to get water. I remember seeing in Uganda these women and, and children, the men really don't participate in a lot of the hard work, which is unfortunate. Not all men, but many times they don't. And so here's these women, and they'll walk for miles and miles and miles just to get water, and then they'll walk back, and they'll be carrying it on their head and carrying it on their shoulders, and what we take for granted. And so this woman's thinking, this is great. I don't have to do all this work. And she's thinking about the physical and Jesus is teaching her about the spiritual. 
Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. Sometimes as you're just reading the Gospels, Jesus did this last week with Nicodemus, is it seems like Jesus just randomly changes the question. It's like, where are you going with this? We're talking about water, and all of a sudden you say, go get your husband. See, but Jesus is identifying the counterfeit wells in her life. He's talking about spiritual well for her to come to. And before she can experience the living water of Jesus Christ, she has to deal with getting rid of these counterfeits. And for her, it's the relationships. And it's the same in our lives. Jesus isn't going to go, hey, you know what? You can go to your wells of the world. And then when you get tired of those, you can come drink of me. And then you can go back to your wells of the world. He's saying, I want to be your sufficiency. I want you to realize that these other wells are broken and they're leaving you empty and you come to me to be your source. And so with this question, he's identifying the counterfeits in her life. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you have well said, I have no husband. For you have five husbands, and the one whom you have is not your husband, in that you spoke truly. I thought she had four husbands, but she had five. I, in my introduction, I said she had four husbands. Five husbands, and the one that she's with isn't her husband. Now try to put yourself in this culture almost 2,000 years ago. This is very, 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 very uncommon for a lady to have five divorces and now the guy she's with is not her husband and she's in adultery. Notice how gracious Jesus is with her. She answered and said, I have no husband. And Christ's response to that was, hey, that's a good answer. You've spoken well. You actually have five. And the one you're with doesn't happen to be your husband. But it's also truthful, isn't it? It's gracious. It's the fullness of grace. But it's also truth. And it's dealing with the heart of the issue. Is it happen chance that God puts this in Scripture for all of eternity for us to meditate upon? Or could it be that we tend to make the same mistake as this woman and we're looking to human relationships to fill a part in our lives that only Jesus Christ can fill. And a lot of times it is romantic relationships and putting our heart on this. And if you're single and you're in that place of, you're saying, you know what, I'm looking for Mr. Right. I'm looking for Mrs. Right. And there's this expectation that they're going to fulfill your heart and then you'll be satisfied. It's an unfair expectation that you're putting upon that person. The person was never created to be God in your life. And you look to Jesus Christ. And when Christ is the one who satisfies you, then you can enjoy your spouse as a blessing. And maybe for some that are, are married, you're in that place where you just haven't quite figured that out. And there's all this tension and struggle inside of your marriage, and you find yourself extremely empty. Could it be that you've gotten your eyes off of Jesus Christ? And your spouse, in some way, you're looking to fulfill you instead of your relationship with the Lord. Kids, such a blessing. But what an unfair expectation to put upon our kids that they're supposed to fulfill us in the way that only Jesus Christ could. So may we learn from this lady and go, Oh, Lord, you're the only one who's going to satisfy. You're the only one that's going to meet that place.
Maybe it isn't relationships. Maybe it's something else. But may God, through his Holy Spirit, put his finger on those wells, those counterfeit wells in our lives. Verse 19. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. In one sentence, her understanding of who she's talking to has just elevated two notches. It went from you're a Jew to sir. Now it goes to this prophet. I believe that you are a prophet. There's something supernatural that's happening. The amazing love of God, when he just starts to press in in the details of our lives, and he's like, I know everything about you. I know what you're thinking. I know these places that you've messed up. I know these places that you're following me. And all of a sudden, there's this overwhelming sense of the love of God. When he just puts himself right into your life and you go, oh, wow, God, you're very present and you know me. And this woman's having that moment right now and she's understanding that there's something supernatural happening. In verse 20, our fathers worshiped on this mountain and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place that you ought to worship. The Samaritans developed their own system of worship. And they kind of took things from here and took things from there and they came up with their own religion. And so upon this mountain, they come and they worship on Mount Gerizim. And the Jews, according to the Old Testament, were worshiping in Jerusalem. In verse 21, Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me that the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming, and catch this, now is when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For God is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Jesus is now having a discussion about worship with this woman. And he identifies in her heart that she doesn't know what she worships. She's confused. She's twisted. He says, we know what we worship. And now's the time right now where the father is seeking somebody. And this is intense because a lot of times we think about seeking God, which is scriptural. And crying out to him and drawing near to him. But God's also seeking people. So right now in our sanctuary, Rocky Mountain Calvary, The Spirit of God, the Father, is looking for somebody that will worship in spirit and truth. God's eyes are going to and fro, all of Colorado Springs, for somebody who will worship in spirit and truth. Throughout the whole world, he's seeking someone that will worship him in spirit and in truth. Isn't that powerful to think about? I want to put myself in a place where God's seeking me, where God's saying, yeah, that's somebody that I want to draw near to. And so the Lord says, someone who worships me in spirit and in truth. Now this word worship, it's kind of confusing a little bit. Because I think for us, a lot of times when we say worship, all we think about is our time of singing songs unto God. That 15, 20 minutes of of worship. And we kind of have conversations like this, like, oh, that was great worship tonight. Or I really enjoyed worship. Or that was a really good worship team. But worship is much more than that. And that's a part, an aspect of worship, of singing to the Lord. But the first time that worship's ever mentioned in the Bible is in Genesis 22, where Abraham went with his son Isaac. And this is what Abraham said. We're going to go up to the mountain and we're going to worship. 
And he was sacrificing what was most valuable to him, his son, his promised son, upon the altar. Church, that's worship. When we put everything into God's hands and we don't hold back and our lives are a living sacrifice to God. So when our heart is in that place of God, everything that I am and everything I do, I want it to glorify you. Of course, it's expressed in song. Of course, it's expressed in singing to the Lord. But that's just the expression of worship. It's not the full experience of worship. Worship, just as much as waking up on Monday morning when you feel terrible and you don't feel like glorifying God, and we say, you know what? This is what the Lord has had me to do, so I'm going to do this and do my best to honor the Lord. That's worship. When everything that God's given to us, from our health to our homes to an apartment to a car, and we say, Lord, this is yours. It belongs to you. I'm holding nothing back from you. That's the experience of worship. And the expression of worship is when we sing to the Lord. So what two ways does God want us to worship him? He wants us to worship him in spirit and in truth. And spirit is your mind, your emotion, your will. It's your heart. It's saying, God, I love you with my, my heart. And that's what I do love about worshiping the Lord in song, is it's a chance to express our heart and sing to the Lord and rejoice in the Lord and let him know how much he means to us. But it's a heart thing that we give to God. It's getting alone with him. It's going for a walk with the Lord. It's when you're in the car. It's when in the shower. Just, God, I give you my spirit. I give you my heart. And God's all about relationship. You know, and a good marriage, it's a giving of the heart. It's a giving of the spirit. It's, it's loving each other from the inside out. And it's the same way with the Lord. Is it's, God, I'm giving you my heart. I'm, I'm giving you my spirit. And then the other is to worship him in truth. And that's to worship him according to God's word to abide in and to walk in the truth of God. And that's why we emphasize both in our church. We want to come together when we meet, Wednesday night, Saturday night, Sunday morning, and we want to worship in spirit. We don't want to miss out on that. We want to sing to the Lord. doesn't matter who's leading worship. doesn't matter if it's chance or someone else. It doesn't matter if it's a hymn or it's not a hymn. We have the opportunity to sing to God regardless of the style of worship. I would hope when we're visiting other churches and we're on vacation and those kind of things, if we walk into a church service and it has a completely different style of worship, that we could worship the Lord because God is good and he's on the throne no matter what the worship team is. I'm going to pick on Mike a little bit. He's sitting here in the fifth row. He's going to Uganda soon to be a missionary here in seven weeks or so. And worship there in Uganda is going to be a completely different style. But I know that Mike's going to be there worshiping the Lord because he's in love with the Lord. So it doesn't matter what the style of worship is. It's the condition of our hearts. But then also to say, Lord, I want to worship you in truth. I want to take the word of God and I want to apply it. And that's why here at RMC, you'll hear the words, open your Bibles. And it's so important that we're not just going through man's opinions or, you know, creative talks or those kind of things because we want to worship God in spirit and in truth. Wouldn't it be amazing personally, but also corporately at Rocky Mountain Calvary, if God's like, oh man, it's Wednesday night. They're going to worship me in spirit and in truth. I can't wait. I'm going to seek them. I'm going to meet with them in a special way. Oh, it's Saturday night. They're getting together on Saturday night. They're going to worship me in spirit. They're going to worship me in truth. 
I'm seeking those kind of worshipers. And that's what we pray, don't we? We pray that God's spirit would be welcome here, that this would be a place where he seeks to be and he's honored to worship in in spirit and in truth. To worship God is the practical way that our well is filled with living water. That's what this lady's missing. And maybe you're wondering, where's the disconnect? I know Jesus is the living water and he promises this living water in my life, but I'm not experiencing it. How do we experience it? We worship. There's no other way. No matter how we're feeling, we begin to sing to him, we begin to pour out our spirit to him, we get in the word of God, and all of a sudden we start to experience something that we can't experience anywhere else. You've probably heard us share as pastors the importance of being in God's word. And hopefully it doesn't come across as legalism. We're not trying to earn brownie points with God or, you know, check off a box with God. But it's living water. It's relationship with God. It's coming and meeting with our Savior. And as we spend time in his word and we worship him, then there's something that we can't get anywhere else. Coming to church isn't going to do it. You know, just coming and listening to other people sing or listen to other people taking in a Bible study isn't going to result in being a worshiper. It's me for myself, you for yourself saying, this one thing I'm going to do in my life, I'm going to be a worshiper. I'm going to go for it. Today, God, you're good. And I'm going to worship you and pour out our hearts before him and be in the word of God. And then God just begins to pour in the living water and it begins to overflow from that place. In verse 25, then the woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming who's called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. She was anticipating the Messiah, a promised one from the Old Testament. And Jesus now reveals to her, the cat's out the bag, I'm the Messiah, right in front of you. In verse 27, and at this point, his disciples came and marveled that he talked with a woman, yet no one said, what do you seek, or why are you talking with her? So they're kind of blown away, like, what's Jesus doing talking with this lady, this Samaritan lady at Jacob's well? But there's nothing anywhere close to implying that Jesus is doing anything impure or unrighteous. There's no question in their mind about it being upright. Verse 28, the woman then left her water pot, went her way into the city, and said to the men, come see a man who told me all the things I've ever done. Could this be the Christ? Then they went out of the city and came to him. First, it's significant that she left her water pot. I think all details are important in scripture. What's implied there is she found what she was looking for, and she doesn't need the water pot. She found living water. She came seeking physical water, but she'd experienced the living water of Jesus Christ. Then she goes back and notice what she does. She goes back to the men of her city, the Samaritan city, and she says, come see a man who told me all the things I ever did. Could this be the Christ? Then they went out of the city and came to him because there's a lot of men who are very interested that this outsider knows everything that this woman has ever done. Are you following me? We have every indication that this lady is living a very sexual, immoral life. She's giving herself away. Time and time again with all of these men, she comes back from the well, which would be a daily common occurrence, saying, hey, 
I met a guy who told me everything I've ever done, including you and you and you. He knew about all this, right? And all of a sudden, the business transaction that was going on and everything that was happening is not important. They're thinking, is this stranger going to find my wife? You know, I could get a lot of trouble today. So they all go out to meet this mysterious man that knows so much about them. She's experienced living water and now she's sharing living water. In verse 31, in the meantime, his disciples urged him saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat of which you do not know. Therefore, the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him anything to eat? I think there's a little bit of just honor and wanting to bring Jesus food. You know, if you have kids, you know that if you ask one kid and say, hey, could you go get me this? You know, in our house, it's like, hey, could you go grab a diaper for for Wyatt? Then all of a sudden, there's two or three other kids that are like running to go get a diaper. And no, dad asked me, dad asked me, dad asked me and come down with a diaper. I kind of picture the disciples the same way. Like, who beat me to Jesus? You know, I got some good falafels here and now he's not hungry and somebody got to this first and I was the one that was going to have the privilege of doing this for the Lord. And again, Jesus is talking about something spiritual. They're thinking physical. Verse 34, Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and finish his work. Jesus gives us the insight of where satisfaction and refreshment comes from. It actually comes from doing the work that God has called us to. Jesus got more refreshed as he was weary, pouring out to this woman and seeing her experience living water than if he would have kicked back and said, I am too tired to have this conversation. To the point where when the disciples come to give him food, he's like, I'm full. I'm satisfied. This is good. And this is a lesson for us because when we get weary, when I get weary, I tend to say, I don't have the energy for this conversation. This is not a divine appointment. I only take divine appointments on my schedule, God. You know, and the Lord's like, no, I don't care how you feel. This is something I want you to do right now. And when we choose to step into his will and do the things that he has for us, that's when we find true satisfaction. But in the process of this, our flesh has to be crucified because our flesh will fight it every step of the way, won't it? Go, And in our minds, we'll think that God's will and God's work is actually the worst place for us to be. We'll go, I, I just, I can't do this. And that's the whole point is the Lord's showing us that his resources come into play when we run out. You know, when we don't have anything to bring. Maybe you're wrestling with something you know that God has called you to do. Is stick with it even if you're weary and the refreshment will come. But here's the trick. Is it God's will and is it his work or is it something that you've put on yourself or somebody else has put on you that was never his will and his work to begin with. Jesus knew he was in the right place at the right time. This is what the Father would have him to do. You're saying, how do I sort that out? We've got to pray about it. We've got to go to the Lord and pick those things that we go, I know this isn't just me. This isn't someone else putting this on me. This is the Father who's giving me this work to do. And then there'll be refreshment inside of that work. In verse 35, Do you not say there are still four months and then comes the harvest? He's speaking to the disciples. Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields, 
for they are already white for harvest. The Samaritan men would wear white turbans, and it's very possible that they're now running towards Jesus, and it would look like this white field that is taking place. And what Jesus is teaching to the disciples is you're saying there's three or four more months, and then we'll be ready to do the work of God. The harvest is going to come in three or four months. And God's saying today, right now, is the day of salvation. And there's an urgency about the kingdom of God and doing his work. Harvest doesn't come down the road. We're in harvest season right now. Maybe you just came to know Christ as your Savior, and you're thinking, I can't really tell people about Jesus. I need three or four months under my belt. No, you tell them what God has done in your life right now. This woman went and shared with others, and she's brand new in the Lord. The harvest is right now. We may say, I don't have the resources, I don't have the time, all those kind of things. When God puts an unbeliever in your life, right now, now is the time and the day of salvation. And the enemy would like to come in a lot of different ways and say, you don't know enough, you're not ready, all of those different kind of things. And God says, right now is the time for the harvest. And why is that? Because we don't know when people are going to step into eternity, do we? And so that's why the Spirit of God is always urging us that right now God wants to do a work. You know, I just feel God's Spirit right now in the midst of this Bible study. Where are you at in life? Where am I at in life? The dailiness of life. God's placed us all right where He wants us. He's put us in this Bible study right now in our lives for a purpose. And He wants to do a harvest right now, right where you're at. Right in the street that you live on right in the job that you work in, right in the family members that you're glued to. We may not like his work, we may not have chosen his work, but him and his sovereign wisdom and his grace, he's put us right where we're at. And don't run, don't flee, enter into the harvest. And this is what I've found in my life. If I can't enter into the harvest right now, I won't enter into it in three or four months. I used to think, especially in my 20s, You know, if God just called me to some outrageous, challenging call in my life, and if I stepped out in faith, then somehow these areas that I struggle in would go away because of that step of faith. And that's not how it works. How does God work? He works in our character right where we are right now. And as we're faithful in the little things that he's given us to do, then we're prepared for that big step of faith that he's called. But a job's not going to change the character A new city is not going to change the character. A new challenge isn't going to change the character. Jesus is going to change our character. Amen? And so we allow him to work in us right now, right where we're at, right in the job we're in, and saying, the kingdom of God is here right now. It's among us. And people are either in the kingdom of God or they're out of the kingdom of God, and God wants to bring about a harvest. In verse 36, And he who reaps receives wages and gathers fruit for eternal life that both he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. Sometimes God calls us to sow the seed, and other times we get to reap the harvest, but they get to rejoice together. Maybe you planted the seed of the gospel, and someone else is going to be able to harvest it. We just be faithful to what God's asked us to do. For in this saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap for that which you have not labored. Others had labored, and you have entered into their labors. He's speaking about these Samaritans that are coming out right before them. And many of the Samaritans of that city believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified. Did you catch that? That's far out. Here's this totally immoral woman 
that's looking to all the wrong things, and she comes in contact with the Messiah, experiences living water, and she's the first missionary in the Gospel of John. (laughs) She goes back to her city, and here many believe because of the testimony of this woman. He told me all that I ever did. So the Samaritans had come to him. They urged him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his own word. We're out of time, but there's so much here. Is they didn't believe just because of the testimony of the woman, but they went and explored Jesus for themselves, and they believed because of the word of Jesus. They made their faith their own. In verse 42, Then they said to the woman, Now we believe not because of what you said, for we ourselves have heard him, and we know that this indeed is the Christ, the Savior of the world. A beautiful testimony of a woman used by God to share what Christ had done in her life. So as we go to a communion, Jesus is here. And he promises living water. And you know what? He's actually so good that he gives living water by grace. The only thing that he asks is that we forsake and turn away from the other wells. That's the only thing. Are you tired of looking to your job to satisfy? Are you tired of looking to relationships to satisfy? Are you tired of looking to to sex to satisfy and it's one relationship after another and it's sexual sin? Are you ready to turn away from that and turn to the Lord? You know, I can remember for me just early on in, in our marriage, in our first year of marriage, God had given me every desire of my heart. I always wanted to be a youth pastor, marry a godly woman, own a little house, have a dog. And in one year, at 23 years old, it all happened. Married to a godly woman, have a little house, have a dog, was a youth pastor right here in this church. And at the end of that year, I was incredibly empty. And everything was going good. Marriage was going good. Our little house was great. Ministry was great. The apex of my emptiness was at a youth retreat where hundreds of kids were there. God was touching lives and bringing kids to Christ, but I felt this depth of emptiness in my soul. And what had happened in that year of blessing is I had allowed all those blessings to try to fulfill my soul instead of intimacy with Jesus. And I'd slowly gotten away from my time alone with God. And after a year, I really felt it. And so that's the way God works sometimes, is he doesn't allow us to be aware of it the first week or the first day. It just starts to catch up on us. And we realize, you know what? Even the blessings in my life, I've allowed to take that place. And the amazing thing about Jesus is he's here. He's here. This is more than just a Wednesday night Bible study where we gain an academic understanding. Let's come and worship him. Worship him in spirit and in truth. Turn away from those counterfeit wells and come and be satisfied in Jesus.